be here next Sunday or the Sunday following. We're going on our vacation, and uh, Tom's going to be preaching next Sunday, and then the following Sunday, Frank is going to be preaching. So Tom's going to be leading us off, uh, I mean, finishing up the book of First John, and then I gave Frank an entire book of the Bible to preach the following week. The book of Second John. Good luck. I am a very lucky person. I believe I'm a lucky person. A few years ago, I was fortunate enough to be selected to serve as a juror for the county of Allegheny. I know, you're jealous, aren't you? If only you could be so lucky. Honestly, a lot of people hate it, and I was sitting in this room with a lot of people, some people trying to hide, but I, I, I got selected, and I, I kind of enjoyed it. Uh, it was a medical malpractice suit. It was brought by a man who suffered an injury that left one of his ankle or his foot, I think it was called drop foot, where he couldn't lift up his foot. He had to wear a boot for the rest of his life because of a, an injury, but then he blamed the doctor and everything. That's why he was in court trying to settle this or taking the doctor to court. And in, in this type of medical malpractice injury, the injured party comes forward with all of their evidence that proving why they think they were wronged, why the doctor was at fault. And as part of their argument, they brought forward a medical expert who testified that the doctor was negligent and the man's injury could have been prevented if he was treated properly. After this guy presented his case and his side of the story, well, then the defense, the doctor and his lawyers got to present their side of the story, and they brought forth evidence saying that the doctor was not negligent, of course, and as part of their defense, they called into question the other side's medical expert. So both sides have medical experts. Both sides were trying to prove and disprove that they were, had the right medical expertise. Honestly, after sitting there, both sides seemed convincing to me. Like the guy who presented first, I was like, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. This doctor could have been at fault in there if I just listened to that medical expert. I remember the defense tried to make the plaintiff's expert seem less credible by saying, you know, this guy, he does this all the time. He, he travels around the country and he like he goes in and he's a medical expert in all these cases and he's getting paid to be here to do this, to give this expert advice here. And some of the jurors, that really made a big impact on them. They said like, ooh, I don't know, like he's getting paid to do this expertise, to be a, a witness here in the case. But for me, you know, I said, I said, it doesn't matter to me if a person is getting paid to testify or not. That's not the question. The question is, is he being truthful? Was his testimony valid? Was he getting paid to lie or was he getting paid to testify? You see, I didn't really care if he was getting paid for his time and expertise. I cared if he was being honest. The question is not how does this benefit the doctor witness. The question should be, can we trust his testimony? What does the evidence say? So you took that with everything else you heard in the case and then the jurors got to go back and deliberate and decide how much money should be awarded this person but really what it comes down to is test the testimony of the witnesses and the evidence that's presented. That's what matters, the evidence. Have you ever talked to someone about religious things and they bring up a lack of evidence by saying, I don't believe in that because there's not enough evidence? Bertrand Russell was a famous atheist who wrote a book entitled Why I'm Not a Christian. It actually came out of a talk he gave of saying, Why I'm Not a Christian. He was once asked what he would say to God if he found himself standing before God, and he, his answer was, I probably would ask him, Sir, why did you not give me better evidence? 
In his book, Russell argues that people are usually Christians for two reasons. One, emotional reasons, he says. And number two, they're Christians because of their upbringing. And there might be some truth to that first claim, but just because there are emotions in a decision doesn't necessarily mean it's the wrong decision or an unspiritual decision. When we realize how sinful we are, when we realize that we have sinned against a holy, loving God, there usually is emotion involved. Not always, but yeah, there's emotions involved in that. The Bible calls this a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And I've heard people make Russell's second argument as well. Some people might say, well, you're just a Christian because you were raised by Christian parents going to a Christian church. Maybe, maybe that's true, but does that make it wrong? No, that's like saying a court witness can't be trusted because he's getting paid for his witness testimony. So the question shouldn't be, where did I learn these things about Jesus Christ? The question should be, are they true or not? That is the, that's the most important question. It doesn't matter where you first learned about Jesus. Everyone should investigate the claims of Christianity honestly to see if they are true. And there's a whole field of study called apologetics. The English word apology comes from a Greek word which basically means to make a defense. Christian apologetics, then, is the science of giving a defense of the Christian faith. I became a Christian when I was really young in a church going to a VBS. It's where I remember hearing the gospel and making a decision to give my life to Christ. And then I grew up in a church, thankfully, praise the Lord, I was able to learn about God. But when I got into high school and college, when I was a younger Christian, I was really interested in this very topic. And I love stories of people who investigated Christianity. I read a book once called Cold Case Christianity, and it was written by an atheist homicide detective who applied his investigative skills to the claims of Jesus Christ, and he became a Christian through that investigative study. There's also the book by Lee Strobel that became a movie called A Case for Christ, where he was an atheistic journalist living in the Chicago area. His wife became a Christian, and he began to investigate from an journal, investigative journalistic point of view, these claims of Christianity. And guess what? He became a Christian too. But the biggest book is called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It was written by Josh McDowell, and the two volumes together is what they sell. This book is 868 pages long. This is not a small book. There's not, because there is a great amount of evidence that if you interact with and you investigate, you need to look at. And he goes through the evidence for the Bible, evidence for Jesus, evidence for the Old Testament, and evidence for truth. So if you or somebody you know is wanting to investigate what is the evidence, then I would encourage you to pick up that book. It's like, but if you want a smaller version, I have a smaller version. <laughs> All right? You got 868, that's too long. Now this book, this is about 80 pages long. All right? This is a lot smaller. This is smaller, and it's called More Than a Carpenter, and there's over 15 million of these of print. And five of them are right here. So if you want a copy, there's one right there if you want to pick it up. This is a much smaller version, and um, it's very accessible, very readable, and it's kind of like his giant book condensed into a smaller version here. Because if you want evidence, if you want to see evidence, if you want to hear evidence, there's more evidence than you can shake a stick at. So I encourage you to investigate the evidence that's out there. The Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he was an eyewitness to the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. 
And he was the last living apostle to write a book of the Bible. He was the last living apostle. He was wrote, writing 1 John, and he would have testified to anybody the overwhelming evidence that Jesus is the Son of God and God exists. The problem is not with the evidence. The problem is with the sinful and unbelieving heart. In fact, people that saw Jesus rise from the grave didn't necessarily always believe that it is true. And these verses that we're looking at today, we can't help but think of a courtroom scene. We can't help but think of a courtroom scene because the, the word um, that we get the English word martyr from, the Greek word martis, is translated as testify or testimony or give testimony, and it occurs nine times in these few verses right here. It basically, mean, basically means someone who has personal and immediate knowledge of something. And that's why if I was to title this message, I would say it should be called, Can I Get a Witness? Because that is the word that appears over and over and over again. And the point that John is making is that this testimony is true. The big idea of today's message is Christians can be certain that Jesus is God's son and God has provided several witnesses that testify to his divine nature, giving Christians assurance and hope and eternal life. So the first thing we see here at the very beginning, verse 6, we're, we're going to see three witnesses that testify to the person and work of Jesus. And then in verses 9 and 10, we see why we should accept the testimony that's been given. And then finally, what happens to us if we accept this testimony? So let's start with the first witness that takes the stand here. John says that it's water. Water. Now, why would he say water? Why would you call water to the stand, right? What does that even mean? Well, there's a lot of different ideas. Some people think it talks about Jesus' birth that the Bible makes some allusions to, like, water, kind of, like, you think of, like, a baby being born, a woman's water breaking, you know. Some people think, well, it's, when he says Jesus didn't come just by water, it means just by his natural birth. Interestingly, you know, um, that was really not in dispute in the first century during Jesus' life, of course. He'd be like, I'm alive, look. But even today, you know, no scholars really, even liberal scholars who don't believe that Jesus was the Son of God, God in the flesh, nobody really discounts a man named Jesus of Nazareth lived in the first century. And no one was denying that here. So I don't think John's making the case for Jesus' physical life. What I believe John's doing here, there was a, the big false teaching of the time that John is partially writing to the Christians to refute the false teaching was by a man named Serenthus. His teaching was, and a lot of people still believe this today, it's a teaching known as adoptionism. His teaching was that Jesus was a, a, a mortal man, born just like everybody else, to Mary and Joseph, human parents, that he lived his life, but then at his baptism, then the Christ spirit descended on him and empowered him during his earthly life to perform miracles, and then while he was on the cross, that spirit left, and he died as a normal man on the cross. So this is uh, false teaching. Like I said, it's called adoptionism. It was taught in the first century. It's still taught today by some people. It's a misreading of what took place at Jesus' baptism because this is what John is referring to, Jesus' baptism right here, as a witness to who Jesus is. And the baptism of Jesus is so important. You know, all four gospel writers included the baptism of Jesus. And at the baptism, you see all three persons of the Trinity in that same place. So uh, Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, it records the baptism this way. It says, After Jesus was baptized... 
he went up immediately from the water. The heavens suddenly opened for him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming down on him. And there came a voice from heaven, This is my beloved Son, I take delight in him. So what you have here, you have Jesus, God in the flesh, being baptized by John the Baptist, dunked under the water, a voice from heaven, God the Father, and then the Spirit of God coming down like a dove, it says, and resting on him. Now, was it a dove? It says like a dove, not a dove. So I don't know exactly. We tend to represent the Holy Spirit as a dove in some of our pictures because it says it's like a dove. So I don't know exactly what it looked like, but what we see here is that we see all three persons of the Trinity at Jesus' baptism. Here at River City Church, we practice... Uh, the example of, we follow the example of Jesus in that we do baptism by water, by immersion into water. And we do this not in order to be forgiven of our sins, but for those of us who have been forgiven of our sins. We are dead in our, to our sins and we are alive in Christ, raised to, to walk in newness of life with him. Jesus was sinless, but just like on the cross, he identified with the sinners that he came to save. So John used the water as a witness to show the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and then he talks about the blood, which is Jesus' crucifixion, or the end of Jesus' ministry. So he makes a point to say it's not just about the water only in verse 6, but, but by the water and the blood of Jesus. And the, both of those are important. The water shows us it's important because it shows that Jesus was truly the Son of God who was able to die in our place for our sins. And the blood is important because if Jesus didn't really bleed and die for us, then we would still be in our sins. We would die in our sins apart from God. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he died as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And the Father gave testimony during Jesus' death. The land was dark for three hours while Jesus hung on the cross. And at Jesus' death, the curtain in the temple tore in two from top to bottom. And even a Roman centurion guard who was standing there said, truly this was the Son of God. Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth was not just um, a random guy who was selected to act like the Messiah while he was on earth. But he is the eternal Son of God who entered into this world, into time and space, and he died as a propitiation, John says, for our sins, to absorb the wrath of God for us. And so his death was not an accident. It was not an example for us to follow, but he was our substitute on the cross. And the blood of Jesus stopped flowing when he died. He really did die on the cross. His body was without life. His brain activity was zero. He really did die. You know, we sing about the blood of Jesus. We talk about the blood of Jesus. I mean, if you didn't know any better, you might think Christians are really weird people. Well, maybe we are weird people, but it is interesting. To, you know, the reason why is because God made it clear that the lifeblood of an, an, of an animal is, in, the life of an animal is in its blood. And he set up this system of sacrificing animals to be reminded that sin brings death. And every day in the temple, there was blood that flowed from the altar of the animals being sacrificed, reminding you that sin leads to death and your sins needed to be covered for, atoned for. And that's what the blood reminded people of. But when Jesus showed up on the scene, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
And so now we don't have to sacrifice animals anymore because Jesus is the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So spiritually speaking, we are covered by the blood of Jesus. So both the water baptism and the blood of Jesus are important witnesses for John and for his listeners. But he brings up a third witness now. In verse 6, it says, The Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth, the Holy Spirit of God. He is the third witness. Now, this is what Jesus said was going to happen when he was on earth. Remember in the upper room when he was teaching his disciples right before he left? He said, but when the helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And so Jesus said that the Holy Spirit is going to come and he's going to bear witness about me. The Spirit was, in, was involved at Jesus' conception, at his baptism, with Jesus in his temptation in the wilderness, throughout his ministry. In fact, when Peter later on was preaching in, in the book of Acts at Cornelius' house, he says, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So John makes a point to say that these three witnesses, the blood, the water, and the spirit, all testify. They all testify together because the Old Testament, it says you can't just take you know, someone's word. You have to have two or three witnesses if you bring a charge against somebody. Because if you just like say, you know, if every time you go to court and it's like he said, she said, you know, I got one witness, I got one witness, and then no other evidence is like, how are we going to decide as a jury, right? We can't make a decision. I either tr- this person looks trustworthy. Well, this person looks trustworthy. It's, we need to have some sense of fairness so that people don't bring false uh, accusations against somebody else. And so in the book of Deuteronomy and their law that set up that you had to have two or three witnesses in order to bring a case. Well, John says, look, I have, there's three witnesses right here. Three witnesses that testify to who Jesus is. Two of them are external, the water and the blood, Jesus' baptism, Jesus' death. And then one is internal. One is internal, the spirit of God who speaks into our own lives. And so if you are investigating the claims of Christ, then I pray that you will be sensitive to what the Holy Spirit is teaching you from God's word. So don't discount what the Holy Spirit is doing. We can't understand the things of God if it wasn't for the Spirit of God teaching us spiritual truths. Listen to these words from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It says this, But as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. That these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. I mean, think about that. Like, we can only understand spiritual things because the Spirit of God reveals them to us. And if you understand spiritual things, understand it's not because you're smarter than the next guy, right? It's because the Spirit of God revealed this to you. And so give glory to God to the things that you know, the things that you've learned about who God is. 
And it's different than the spirit of the world. It's the spirit of God. And the spirit of God knows the heart of God who speaks to our spirit. And these th three things agree, John says, the water, the blood, and the spirit. The water and the blood testify that he came to us, and the spirit testifies that he came for us. You know, there's a fourth witness, too, in verse 9 that gives us a reason exp explanation of why we should accept this testimony that we've heard. And it's this classic argument you see all the time in the Bible. It's called the, greater to, uh, the lesser to greater argument. It says, well, you know, you accept the testimony of man, right? If two or three people agree, that's pretty convincing, right? And especially if they don't have any reason to lie, you would accept what they say is true. Well, John says, if that is true, then how much more shouldn't you believe God himself? The testimony of God is greater than the testimony of man. Man can lie. God does not lie. God is trustworthy. Jesus explained this to some of the, the Jewish leaders who doubted him in John chapter 5, verses 31 to 38. Jesus said, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, like, I'm like, he's not, Jesus isn't going to lie, right? Why does he say it like that? I think he says it like that because he's trying to get them to see, hey, it's not just me. It could be just me, Jesus might say, but it's not just me. So he says, if I alone bear witness myself, you don't have to believe me. But then he goes on in verse 12 and says, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. And verse 33, says, you sent to John, as in John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth. Now that the testimony that I receive, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John the Baptist. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. So Jesus says, look, you believe John the Baptist. You love John the Baptist, right? Everybody loves John the Baptist. He dressed a little funny. He talked loud. People came out to see him. And a lot of people, he, Jesus calls him the shining light. In fact, Jesus one time said, no man born of woman is greater than John the Baptist. Like, John the Baptist was the man, and everybody loved him, right? Everybody believed him, and Jesus says, you liked him, and you believed him, and you found out his testimony, but he's just another man, but look at the testimony from God, and the testimony from God, Jesus says, is the works that I've been doing. All the signs that I've been doing, all the miracles that I've been doing, that is the stamp of approval from God the Father in heaven for you to believe that what I'm saying is true. So my word, yes, if you want to listen to John the Baptist, great, but look at the works that the Father is doing. I mean, you can't really doubt that. See, the fourth witness about Jesus, who Jesus is, John says, is the Father in heaven who's also giving witness to the truthfulness of who Jesus Christ is. And the Father's witness concerning his Son is what Jesus says is that's the most important witness here. So, what we let, we're left with here is that this demands a response to each and every one of us. The words that John is sharing here, the words that you are hearing today, the words that the Spirit of God is speaking to you, it demands a response. You can't just bring back a verdict and be like, ah, uh, the jury, we decide, never mind, we're going home. 
No, the judge would say, get back in here and do your job. But we want to go home. No, you can't. You, this is, this, there's a decision that has to be made. Neutrality and indecision is not an option. If you say, I'm not going to decide, well, that's your decision, right? If you say that, uh, I don't know if I believe it, well, then that's, that, that's the decision you're making. And that is why you should accept this testimony that John is putting forth here. There's only two possible outcomes, either belief or unbelief. There's no in-between. To not believe that Jesus is the Son of God is to not believe God. And what he says here is that um, they made him a liar, a liar for not believing the testimony of God about whom he says, it says there in verse 10. And John says that believing in Jesus as the Son of God is equivalent to accepting God's testimony about who he is and about who the Son is. And to reject him is basically to say, now God is perjuring himself up there. We're calling God a liar. It's that simple and straightforward. And John is trying to make it very clear. It's either belief or unbelief. If you have received Jesus, if you believe in him, John says there in the beginning of verse 10, that you have a testimony in yourself. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you and gives you the confidence that you believe what is right. As it says in Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So it's like those outward testimonies are speaking to our heart, assuring us that we have been born again. And that's helpful for us today because we don't just have to look back at prior experiences in our life to know if we've been born again. He's telling us to look today at our present testimony at the witness. So the question that I have for you is, who are you trusting today? Who are you believing in today? Where is your hope and confidence today? Is it in Christ? If so, then rest assured that you have the Son and the gift of eternal life. Just because you might not know the exact moment of your conversion doesn't necessarily mean you're not saved. A past experience might be helpful for you, but it's the present-day ongoing testimony and the work of the Spirit in your life that it says in Romans 8 17 gives us the assurance that we are the children of God. And that, gives us, that can give us great assurance when we are going through difficulties, when we can go to God's Word and hold on to the promises, promises like God says that He'll never leave us and never forsake us. Promises like we just read in the book of Romans that we do have the Holy Spirit. And so that's part of the, um, what happens, the consequences of accepting the testimony that he lays out. So he gives us the, all these witnesses, all these things saying, like, this is true, this is true, and you, and you know this is true. And if you accepted this, you have the Son of God. And if you believe in the Son of God, you have this. And so what's the result? Well, look at verse 11. It says, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Again, you can see what John says here. It's kind of black and white. It's, there's no in-between. Like, there's room for questioning and stuff, but, like, there's no, like, in-between heaven and hell. I told somebody yesterday who was asking me, I said, purgatory is a made-up thing. It's not in the Bible, okay? It's just not, it's not in the Bible. And the guy was like, oh, I always wondered where it was. I'm like, it's not there. That's why you can't find it. Well, John says, if you have the Son, you have life. If you don't have the Son of God, you don't have life. To have the Son means to believe in Him. So believing in Jesus is the key to life. It's the key to life. It's the key to abundant life. Yeah, you might 
make your way through this life not knowing Jesus. And you might think that you have a pretty good life without Jesus. And it, it's true. From the outside, I will tell you it's true. Not every person ends up like the homeless alcoholic that I talked to this week who has just destroyed his life. But trust me, your life is incomplete when you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You were created to know God, to love God, to worship God, here in this life and in the age to come, in the life to come, eternal life. And so every one of us is going to have a time, if Jesus doesn't come back first, where our physical life is going to end. So the question is, is the million-dollar question, those million-dollar bills that we passed that, says the million-dollar question, where are you going to go after you die in this life? The benefits of eternal life, too, I'll tell you this, is not just happens after you die. It doesn't just happen after the resurrection. John 17, 3 says, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing Jesus. Jesus called himself the resurrection and the life because those who are united to him by faith enjoy the benefits of eternal life here on earth. And those who reject Jesus, it says in John 3, 17, they stand condemned already, waiting for the final sentence on Judgment Day. So, in conclusion, I want to tell you, put yourself in the jury box, just like I was on that day in the Allegheny County Courthouse. You've heard all of the evidence, and the decision now is up to you. What will you choose? You can continue to go your own way. It may seem right at first, but in the end, it leads to death. Or you can choose life. You like when God gave the law to his people through Moses. He says at the end of Deuteronomy, I set before you life and death. Therefore, choose life. The Bible teaches that you don't have to, have to hope if you have eternal life or even think you have eternal life. You can know you have eternal life when you have the Son of God, Jesus Christ, as your Savior and Lord. In the words of C.S. Lewis, your choices as to who Jesus is are pretty limited. In light of what Jesus said about himself, in light of what God has said about him, in light of what the water and the blood and the Holy Spirit has said of him, Jesus is either a liar a lunatic, or a lord. You have no other options. If he is a liar, ignore him. If he is a lunatic, then disregard him. But if he is lord, repent of your sin, believe in him for salvation, and fall at his feet in worship. Let's pray together. God, we thank you. I thank you, Lord, that we can uh, have so much evidence that you sent Jesus to be born in, in a real place at a real time in, in the city of Bethlehem to a mom named Mary in a, the Roman government. And there's so much evidence of your working. Oh God, I pray, Lord, that um, we would have eyes to see and ears to hear what you have for us. And Lord, I pray that we would believe in you we receive life, eternal life through your Son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.